So Ezekiel 22, 23 to 31, I've titled this sermon, Without a Mediator, Only Wrath. And this passage before us, I think, serves as a summary of the Lord's complaint, the Lord's just complaint against his people. The people are bad, the leaders are worse, and there's no one to stand in the way of my judgment. So without a mediator, there's only wrath. First, the people are bad. We're going to see this in verses 23 and 24, but also verse 29. The leaders are worse, and we're going to learn about conspiring prophets, blasphemous priests, and violent princes in verses 25 to 28. And then finally, in verses 30 to 31, we're going to consider how the Lord sought for someone in the land to stand up on behalf of his people and plead for mercy, but he found no one. And so they must face the fire of the Lord's wrath. And that's our third point, without a mediator, only wrath. So the, uh, the people are bad, the leaders are worse, and without a mediator, only wrath. So let's talk about how the people are bad. This is verses 23 and 24 and also 29. Now, the message about the lack of water, if you see that in verse 24, son of man, say to her, you are a land that is not cleansed or rained upon in the day of indignation. I think that, the, that we could take this as literal, that the, there's a drought, but I think it's a visual picture as well of just how spiritually undernourished the whole people are. It's not merely lack of hydration, but it's spiritual nourishment of the Lord. Think of Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I will seek you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The land is dry and has no water, and the psalmist looks not to rain clouds, but to the Lord. Well, where are the people in Ezekiel 22 looking? Are they turning their hearts to the Lord? Absolutely not. Look at verse 29. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. So we've got extortion, robbery, oppression, extortion. Extortion is using force or the fear of force in order to get your way. Robbery is actually using force or the fear of force to take something. Uh, oppression is mistreating people, and that could be physical mistreatment, but it also could just be making people's lives miserable. And then that last sentence, extorted from the sojourner without justice. So they're oppressing the poor and needy, and they're extorting, extorting the sojourner without justice. That is to say that the people are so bad that they're picking on those that cannot take care of themselves. So they're adding cowardice to their laundry list of wickedness. It's not just that they oppress people, they find the weak and the needy. Now, they said, of course, that they belonged to the Lord, that they were the Lord's people, but their actions demonstrate that that is not the case. The American church is no different than these people. Did you know that people who call themselves conservative Protestants but don't go to church are actually 20% more likely to divorce 
than unbelievers? That if you call yourself an evangelical, but you never go to church, then your divorce rate is higher than if you just say that you're an atheist or a nun. Think about that for a moment. Consider another statistic more poignantly. 70% of women who have had an abortion claim Christianity as their religious preference. More than four in 10 women who had an abortion were churchgoers, according to a study sponsored by CareNet. Now, if you find yourself in this church, and I do not say this glibly or lightly, if you find yourself in this church divorced after having had an abortion, then it should be good news to you that God knows how to deal with bad people. That we're all, we're all bad people. We, that's not an excuse for wrongdoing, but God is not shocked at what you have been through. God knows from even before Ezekiel 22 that his people can act in horrible ways. Now, we must repent We must recognize the wrong that we have done and the wrong that has been done to us. And this highlights our need for a mediator, for someone to stand between us and a holy God. And you know what's coming without a mediator, only wrath. So we need to think in a moment about our need for a mediator and who that possibly could be. So that's our first point, the people are bad. It's a quick point. The second is longer. The leaders are worse. Now, perhaps they're worse because they have more power, because they have more influence, and they kind of corrupt the city like the the wickedness of the leaders rolls downhill, as it were. Alternatively, maybe the people are so bad that they get such losers for leaders because... It's just anything goes. Whatever the relationship between the leaders and the people, though, we can see that the people are bad, but the leaders are worse. We have three kinds of horrible leaders in Ezekiel 22. Horrible prophets, horrible priests, and horrible princes. The prophets are worse, that's verses 25 and 28. The priests are worse, that's verse 26. And then the princes are bad, verse 27. So the prophets, what are prophets supposed to do? Prophets are supposed to hold forth the word of God and truth without regard for their personal well-being. That's what a good prophet is supposed to do. But instead, God's people, look at verse 25, God's people face a conspiracy of prophets and they are conspiring for their own gain. They are conspiring for their own advantage. And they're lying prophets. Look at verse 28. They see false visions and divining lies for the people saying, thus says the Lord God when the Lord God has not spoken. So the prophets band together to consume human lives. They feed like lions on other people. They take treasure and precious things from the Lord's people. They preach lies for their own personal gain at the expense of others. I don't know if you noticed it when I read it, but verse 25, they have made many widows in her midst. In her midst. That's a curious expression. What could it possibly mean? 
Well, one plausible suggestion is that the prophets made many widows in her midst because they told the people what they wanted to hear, namely that they could rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and thus says the Lord, God is going to grant us victory. And so they all sent their husbands to war. The lying prophets stayed home. And guess who got slaughtered? Not the conspiracy of prophets, not the liars who lied to the people about what the Lord was, you know, thus says the Lord when the Lord didn't say it. It's the, the, the sons and the husbands and the fathers of the people who are slaughtered by Nebuchadnezzar. They were lying. They smeared whitewash, verse 28, and her prophets have smeared whitewash for them. So whitewash covers the structural fragility of a wall. So it looks like it's fine, but underneath it's rotten, it's decaying. And you realize that when everything crumbles. In Ezekiel chapter 13, the Lord says about the prophets, precisely because they misled my people saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash, say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. It shall fall. And in point of fact, the literal walls of Jerusalem came tumbling down in spite of the false hopes that lying prophets gave the people. And let's be frank. There are still lying prophets. There are still people who say this is not required for the Christian faith, even though the Bible could not be clearer that it is required for the Christian faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ when he did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. So you have to believe in the resurrection in order to be a Christian. And yet, so-called Christian leaders deny the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and there are other so-called defenders of the resurrection who nevertheless let them get away with it. In 2006, one widely known Church of England bishop, who typically is, is cited as somebody who's defending the Bible, spoke of American theologian Marcus Borg with warmth and affection. And this is what this bishop said, quote, Marcus Borg really does not believe Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. But I know Marcus well. He loves Jesus and believes in him passionately. No, no. If you don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then you don't know Jesus. You don't love Jesus. The Jesus that you claim to love is a mere creature comfort of your own imagination and not the risen Lord Christ calling you into repentance. 
You may believe in some Jesus, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Do not judge the Bible by what lying prophets think about the Bible. Judge lying prophets by what the Bible clearly teaches. So that's the bad prophets. Now let's turn to bad priests. Verse 26. Priests are supposed to stand between God and the people, representing the people before God and representing God before the people. They must distinguish between the holy and the common, between the sacred and the profane. They must be careful and diligent in their obedience to the Lord. How do these priests, how does it go for the people with these priests? Verse 26. Her priests have done violence to my law and have profaned my holy things. They've made no distinction between the holy and the common. Neither have they taught the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have disregarded my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Now, there are two distinctions here. First, they have no, they've made no difference between the holy and the common. That is to say, they've treated everyday objects like they belong in the temple, and they have, have treated temple objects like they're for personal use, that it's no big deal to use the Lord's objects for everyday affairs. Second, they have made no distinction between the unclean and the clean. Think about that for a moment. Is it any wonder that the people are totally plunged into sin when even their own priests make no difference between the clean and the unclean? Notice, too, about the, they, how they've disregarded my Sabbaths, that the priests don't even care about the law of the Lord when the law is so obviously given for their benefit. The Lord says, rest, have a holy rest. And the priests are like, no, we don't, who cares about that? But God is calling, God gives us all, all the laws the Lord gives us are for our good. But some are most evidently for our good, a command to rest. And yet the priests simply do not care. The Lord's response of wrath in Ezekiel 22 should not surprise us. It has been his consistent position that his priests are called to holiness. In Numbers chapter 3, when the people are, uh, it's, it's a new, new days in the life of Israel and, and then the life of the nation state. If you remember in Numbers 3, Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offer, uh, offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So the Lord has always been concerned that his priests would do what he says. He has every right to require this obedience. Now, today we have continued disregard for the distinction between the, the clean and the unclean and the, the sacred and the everyday. It's why we get religious leaders making public pronouncements on all sorts of things that have nothing to do with the Trinity, Incarnation, or Atonement. My favorite example of a religious leader uh, giving a, uh, uh, a comment on something that should not be the business of a religious leader to give 
is um, Pope Francis in his papal encyclical Laudato Si um, screams and cries against the uh, growing evil of air conditioning. So here's a quote from Pope Francis. People may well have a growing ecological sensitivity, but has not succeeded in changing their harmful habits of consumption, which, rather than decreasing, appear to be growing all the more. A simple example is the increasing use and power of air conditioning. The markets, which immediately benefit from sales, stimulate even greater demand, thereby showing uh, his ignorance both of, uh, of the benefit that air conditioning gives, particularly to the elderly in extremely hot climates, but also uh, his ignorance of economics, as though air conditioning companies are coming round in the summertime in Northwest Arkansas saying, would you like to air condition your house? And I say, no, I want to sweat to death. So what about the Sabbath? You know, I was surprised uh, just because I had such a pessimistic view of what broader um, Protestantism in America would have. But I was surprised because of my low expectations that uh, 56% of, uh, of Protestants say taking a day of Sabbath rest each week is a biblical command that still applies today. 25% say no, and 19% don't know. So God gives us the Ten Commandments, and one of them is rest on the Lord's Day, and 44% um, of people, aren't you impressed with my quick math, 25 plus 19, uh, or 100 minus 56, 44% of people say either, nah, we don't have to do that, or it's just really all, it's so confusing, right? The Lord says rest, and we don't, I mean, maybe, maybe he doesn't want to, like, I just don't know. So we, we disregard the Lord's clear commands. But most horrifically, religious leaders have, they make no distinction between the clean and the unclean. They make no distinction between what should be uh, publicly praised and what should be publicly condemned. This October, two Sundays ago, a United Methodist Church in Florida hosted a drag queen during the service to offer the children's sermon. Later, the drag queen also presided at the center of the Lord's table, flanked by ordained ministers. Uh, in a public statement, the drag queen offered this comment about God. So this is the person they had between two ministers at the Lord's table. God is nothing. But if she were, she would be a seamstress of divine couture, weaving together string theory and self-poetrits to form the fiercest gowns of queer existence. This sentence is incoherent, blasphemous gibberish. But here we are. Here we are. The prophet Ezekiel would not come to America and say, American church, impressive people. Good job. What, what, you know, what a great thing you've got going here. So let's be very clear. How do we apply this? If you visit a church and no distinction is made between the holy and the common, between the clean and unclean, then leave and never return. Indifference to the Lord's law 
is not casual, cool, hip, trendy, or relevant. Instead, it is wicked. It profanes the name of the Lord, and the Lord will not allow his name to be profaned for long. So bad prophets, bad priests, and now bad princes. Verse 27. Her princes are in her midst her princes in her midst are like lie, are like wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain. Now the prophets are like lions. Lions are ambush hunters. They stalk their prey. And then do you see my visual? This is, you know, this is my they they stalk their prey. And then they pounce, you know, this short burst of speed, they tackle their prey. But these princes are like wolves. They hunt in packs. If, if large prey stand their ground, then wolves generally tend to shy away. But when a herd runs and begins to flee, then the wolves chase them down. Sometimes for, for uh, a, a long period of time, like a mile or over a mile, and, and wear down the, the prey before tearing the prey, shedding blood, and destroying lives. And why do these wolf princes... So I was thinking about this, this just as an aside. You know, I, I think I would rather just be eaten by a lion, right? I'm kind of walking, you know, in Africa, and there's a little, you know, not a little, a big lion kind of crouching, and then I go, ah, a lion, and then I'm dead. Whereas... <laughs> I would rather that than just have the relentless pursuit of maybe I can escape. Maybe I can, you know, the the long pursuit would be absolutely terrifying. And why do these wolf princes devour their people? Well, we read about it in verse 27, to get dishonest gain. They do violence to the people for their own private benefit. We have horrible leaders. We really do. I, I sometimes wonder how we get stuck with them, and then I realize that we deserve the leaders that we have, right? That we're horrible people too. We want to export to our leaders our own wickedness. Perhaps the best of the worst of my favorite instance of, of bad leaders and horrible uh, options is the 1991 governor's race in Louisiana. Edwin Edwards was well known as a corrupt politician, but his opponent, David Duke, was a notorious white supremacist. So a pro-Edwards bumper sticker proclaimed, vote for the crook, it's important. And the crook won. Edwards became governor. Edwin Edwards would be later convicted of racketeering, extortion, money laundering, mail fraud, and wire fraud. But before he went to prison, he said, quote, I will be a model prisoner as I have been a model citizen. <laughs> Bad leaders cannot be an excuse for our own wickedness. And if we are in a position to choose better leaders, we should do so. And finally, if you are someone that can lead and not act for dishonest gain, then the Lord may be calling you 
to pursue a position of leadership in your community, in the church, and politics. We need good people to rise up and to lead or to offer themselves for leadership. So the people are bad, the leaders are worse, and then finally, without a mediator, only wrath. The Lord looks, this is verses 30 to 31, the Lord looks through the city to find someone to stand up on behalf of the people to plead for mercy, and he finds no one. And so the response is verse 31. Therefore, I've poured out my indignation upon them. I've consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. Now, we know that there was one righteous man, at least in the city, the prophet Jeremiah. But in Jeremiah chapter 11, the Lord tells Jeremiah, don't pray for these people. And the Lord even says in Jeremiah chapter 15, though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward these people. And we know from Ezekiel chapter 14 that Ezekiel is told not once, but twice that if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in Jerusalem, they could only escape with their own lives. They could not intercede for the people. And as, as, as I've thought of this image of um, someone standing between the Lord and his people in the Old Testament, I've noticed that their intercession is somehow incomplete. Either it's incomplete because the agreement they reach with the Lord cannot possibly be fulfilled by the people, or it's incomplete because all they do is guarantee that those who have not sinned against the Lord so egregiously are not consumed, but those who have so sinned are in fact consumed. Just let me illustrate this with a couple of examples. So Abraham pleads with the Lord for Sodom in Genesis chapter 18. He gets the Lord to agree not to destroy the city if he can find a mere 10 righteous people. And this is when Abraham's nephew Lot and Lot's family are in the city. So Abraham is probably thinking like, we we can get the 10, but of course he can't, right? And Sodom is destroyed, though... Lot, there are people who are, are rescued. That's in Genesis. In Exodus 32, after the horrific episode of the golden calf, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people and his intercession, that this conversation is, uh, is really um, quite telling. Moses said, you know, Lord, the people have sinned a great sin but forgive their sin. And then uh, Exodus 32, 32. If, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses said, let their punishment fall on me, O Lord. And the Lord says, no, I'm going to blot them out of my book. The people who've sinned against me, I'm going to blot them out of my book. And he says to Moses, but now go lead the people to the place about which I've spoken to you. And he says, no, but those people, I'm going to, I'm going to visit them. And if the Lord is angry, you don't want him to visit you, but he does. The Lord is saying to Moses, I'm not going to completely wipe these people out, 
but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring wrath on these people who have worshipped a golden calf. And the same is true in Numbers 14. When the Lord actually tells Moses, I'm going to get rid of this people, Moses, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And the Lord pleads with them. And again, the Lord pardons the people in Numbers 14. But he says, all of these people are not going to enter the promised land. Caleb, he'll get to enter the promised land because he's faithful. But these people aren't. Without a mediator, there's only wrath. But even when there is a mediator, you may have an incomplete rescue. The, 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 uh, it may be incomplete because the people that most need the mercy are actually destroyed. So we need a better mediator than the prophets, priests, or princes of Ezekiel's day. But we even need a better mediator than Abraham or Moses. And the question is, do we have one? Absolutely, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5, for there is one God and there is one made mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. But does Jesus stand before the Lord, God the Father, and does he say what Moses said and get the same outcome? Right, do I only, do I only have hope if I haven't sinned against the Lord? Do I only have hope if I've not worshipped the golden calf? If I've not said the people in the land are like grasshoppers? If I've uh, um, stayed in the suburbs of Sodom but not moved into the city? Is that the only way that I have hope? And the answer is no. We sinners have hope because Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Hebrews 9:15. Someone has to die. Listen to Hebrews 9:15. Therefore he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. What does Moses say? Moses says, "Okay, I'm not going to wipe the people out, but those people are going to die." Now, with the Lord Jesus, what happens? Is God going to wipe me out? No, but somebody has to die for my sin. Who died for my sin? Jesus did. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, at just the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. Abraham interceded, but Sodom burned. Moses interceded and a remnant was saved, but the wicked died. Jesus interceded and we have life and joy and peace and honor. Jesus is the prophet, the true prophet, who teaches us the will of God for our salvation. Jesus as the true priest who intercedes for us and is also the sacrifice for our sins and Jesus is the true priest, is the true prince. He's the true king who rules and conquers all his and our enemies. So how should we respond? Well, the first way we respond is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust in the Lord Jesus. When there's conflict in the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the apostle Paul says something curious. He says, was Paul crucified for you? 
Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And why is he saying this? I think he's saying it because we have no other person who can save us from the wrath to come than the Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians and we are divided because we are not looking to the only hope we have, the only mediator between a holy God and a sinful people is Jesus. Not Abraham, not Moses, not Ezekiel, not the Apostle Paul, only Jesus. And if we belong to him, if he, if Jesus is our mediator, then we have escaped the wrath to come regardless of what we have done. God is in the business of finding the most disreputable, dishonorable, most sinful people and transforming their lives, picking them up out of the pit and setting them on the rock that is Christ. That's our first point is trust in Jesus. The second is to love one another, to serve and honor each other, to care for each other, not to be like these people in Ezekiel 22 who are interacting merely and only for their personal gain and devouring people's lives, but to pour ourselves out for each other. First Thessalonians 5, Paul says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So friends, let's trust in Jesus and let's continue to build each other up just as we are doing. Let's pray. Lord, if there is anyone within the sound of my voice who is not trusting in the only mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that you would burden him or her with a certain knowledge of personal wickedness, a deep need for the Savior. And we pray that you would open that person's eyes, renew his or her will, and that that person may embrace the Lord Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. And we pray that we all would be grateful for the rescue that you've given us. And we, when we are tempted to despair and look to the sin within us, that we would look to the cross and see the one who made an end of all our sin. And it's in his strong and powerful name we pray. Amen.